The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belongs mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. And into verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, friends, let's stand together for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel lesson comes to us from the book of Matthew, chapter 26. If you have one of the pew Bibles, I believe we're going to page 832. 
Friends, this is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Beginning in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, which he, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, friends, it's my privilege to introduce uh, to you this morning, for those of you who have not met her yet, Lane Cowan. Lane, come on up. Lane is our new Senior Director of Ministries on staff. Uh, A number of you have asked what that means. Uh, What does it mean to be Senior Director of Ministries? Well, you can think of Lane's role on the team and really in kind of two buckets or two categories. One is to be uh, a leader for our staff, that uh, most of our staff now report to Lane and Lane uh, has kind of a a shepherding oversight, um, coaching oversight over a lot of our staff and is doing a great job at that. Um, The other role that she has is providing shepherding care to the congregation. And so as Redeemer has grown over the years, my ability to meet with and know every single person in the church has been completely maxed out. Um, I love you, but I can't know everybody. And so um, as the church has grown, there's been the need to add more and more people to the team to provide care uh, for the congregation. Um, And Lane is here to do that. Lane joined our staff on September 1st. And um, so we're about a month and a half in. It's good to have you, Lane. Um, And she's going to preach to us from Daniel chapter 9 this morning. As she begins, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, my friend and my sister, Lane. I pray that you would speak through her to us this morning. Would you open our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive your word to us through your servant, Lane. All this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dan. And good morning. It is a privilege to be with you exploring God's word this morning with friends old and new both. And as a bit of review, here at Redeemer, we've been going through the book of Daniel, asking the question of what it meant for Daniel to be a faithful presence while in exile in a foreign land and under a foreign king. And how that story is our story, how that helps us try to do the same here in this place and in this time. But first, if you'll allow me, I want to say one more prayer. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and our hearts together be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Friends, do you remember when you first learned what it felt like to have someone break a promise to you? I remember the first time I really learned this. I was in third grade. I was new to this school, feeling pretty awkward, pretty desperate to make friends. And lo and behold, in my class, Jennifer, I'm a child of the 80s, so there were four or five Jennifers at the time, but the most popular Jennifer told me that she was going to bring me into her group, that she was going to take care of me and help me have some friends. And not too long thereafter, she did not invite me to her birthday party. 
And it was a very noticeable uh, absence. She was handing out invitations to the rest of the class and did not give one to me. And I remember as a third grader feeling so disoriented, what happened? And I started to review all the things that she had said and saw in a new light what she might have actually meant. And it felt terrible to have her break this promise. And I looked at her completely differently from then on. And friends, I imagine that all of us know this feeling, what it is like to have someone break a promise. We know what this is like in our friendships. We know this with our coworkers. Some of us know this in our marriages. Some of this, we know this in our churches. And some of us know what it's like to wonder if even God himself will keep his promises. And this question of what it is to expect someone to keep their promise, particularly how do we know it's safe to expect God to keep his promises to us? This is a question raised in our text this morning. As we look at our passage today, we're going to see two things. One, that God is a covenant keeper. We can trust God to keep his promises because of how he is a covenant keeper. And we're going to see that Daniel asks God to keep his promises through a confessional humility. Now by way of uh, orientation, particularly for those of you who might not have been with us through this whole series, we see Daniel has spent most of his long life in faithful service in a foreign land to foreign kings, first Nebuchadnezzar and then his son Belshazzar, and now most recently Darius, who came in, conquered Babylonian armies and ushered in this Medo-Persian rule. And Daniel has already been given these apocalyptic visions of the beastly realities of all these different kingdoms violently fighting for control and the heavenly, longer-lasting reality to come of the sovereignty of God and how one day the suffering ends and God's purposes will win out. Israel will be rescued from exile and get to go home. Now, here in our text this morning, we start off with Daniel having noted that he is under Darius' reign, a new king, the same commitment, and we see in verse two that Daniel has been reading from the prophet Jeremiah, who was also speaking to Israel in this time of exile. And Daniel has perceived or read in Jeremiah's writings that after a period of 70 years, Israel's exile will end and God will return to Jerusalem, will return Israel to Jerusalem and bring judgment on Babylon. And so we see in Jeremiah 25, 12, and 13 particularly, the Lord declaring, then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book. So now Daniel is faced with the possibility that this terrible season of Babylonian exile might soon be coming to an end. What does Daniel do? Look at verse four. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel does what he has always done. 
he seeks the Lord in prayer. And we see him do two things specifically. He prays a prayer of confession and he calls upon God as the one who keeps covenant. Now friends, the word covenant is one of those rich, theologically meaty words. Whenever you come across the word covenant in scripture, as Dan says, you wanna imagine a whole drop down menu of all sorts of symbolism and meaning and theme. So I wanna take us on a brief journey of understanding more of what covenant is because this is our story, not just Daniel's. Covenants were practiced throughout the regions of the ancient Near East, meaning this was a practice known before we see uh, this covenant being mentioned by Daniel. These are legal arrangements between two parties, sometimes between two parties of equal power. Other times there was a larger or more powerful party, a king who made a treaty, an, a covenant with a lesser power, perhaps a regional lord that owed him allegiance. And the covenant of an ancient Near East always included a few things. There was a promised blessing or benefit offered by one or both parties and a condition that must be kept in order for that covenant to hold. There were also curses or punishments stipulated for the person that broke the covenant obligations. And after covenant oaths or promises were made, the covenant was sealed, not by a handshake with some spit, but rather a particular ritual that included the cutting in half of sacrificial animals. And the covenant participants walked between the cut carcasses to signify that each of them would become like those dead animals if they broke covenant. So it was a severe consequence. Now, when God first called out to Abram, he made promises to him. God loves making promises to his people. In Genesis 12, we read God saying, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But if you follow this story of Abram, we know just a few chapters later in Genesis 15, Abram is still waiting on those promises. He sees no sign of God keeping those promises. God reassures him, he attends to keep those promises and Abram asks, how am I to know? Do you know this question? God, how am I to know that you are going to keep your promises to me? When Abram asked this question, we see that God answers him by bringing about this covenant ritual. God tells Abram to bring several kinds of animals and cut them in two to seal the covenant between them. But friends, next is the crucial difference. And this is why we're exploring this covenant term together this morning. In a typical ancient Near Eastern covenant, Abram as the less powerful person would be the one to pass through those cut animal pieces. He would be the one to benefit from God, the more powerful one, his blessings, his protection. But he, Abram, would also be the one to face the consequences if covenant was broken. That is not how God chooses to seal this covenant between him and Abram. In Genesis 15, 17, we see when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch 
passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This fire, this flame that passes through, this is God's own presence. And he is the only one, the only party to walk through these animal pieces, meaning God chooses to bear the consequences if this covenant is broken. So let's return to Daniel. Why might it matter so much that he begins his prayer addressing God as the one who keeps covenant? Because Daniel knows that this single word, covenant, is actually a shorthand for the long history of God with his people, Israel. God made a covenant with Abram and renewed or reaffirmed that covenant with Isaac and then Jacob. How often do you read God being addressed as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? When you see that, this is covenant language. And yet Abram's offspring failed to live according to God's law, and we know they suffered the consequences of exile in Egypt for many generations. And then God delivered them and renewed covenant with Moses on Sinai with the Ten Commandments and reaffirms this covenant again with Joshua in the Promised Land and then Samuel and then Elijah and again with David as Israel grows into a prosperous and powerful nation. Yet time and again, God's people will not remain faithful to this covenant and they break God's laws and face the consequences of their sin. And this is where Daniel lives in this latest iteration of this wearisome cycle where Israel has been scattered to foreign lands and their temple has been destroyed some 70 years ago. And yet Daniel has the audacity to ask God to forgive his people and rescue them once more. How can Daniel do this? How can he demand this of God? How can he pray in this way? He knows that God cannot abandon his covenantal promises even though Israel has been a fickle partner. And that is why Daniel prays this beautiful prayer where he names all the righteous ways of God and confesses all of the fickle ways of Israel. Look at verses nine through 11. They read, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. The first half of Daniel's prayer is this honest accounting of God's righteousness and Israel's rebellion. And do you notice that Daniel is not placing himself as a bystander here? Do you notice that he confesses personally? How many times do you see Daniel saying, we us, our sin. Daniel offers zero defense of his own actions, much less anyone else's. Though we know Daniel as a model servant of this foreign land and these foreign kings, a faithful devotee to his own God in this foreign place, he does not defend himself, but identifies with all of sinful Israel. If you grew up with at least one sibling, or if you are a parent of two or more children, you know the impulse we can have to point out someone else's sin first, particularly to minimize our own. My younger sister, she's a year younger, she and I were so very quick to volunteer a detailed play-by-play of the other one's misdeeds without ever acknowledging that we might have had a hand, maybe even a starting one in any of the mischief. 
And yet Daniel, our faithful servant, has a posture of confessional humility because he is addressing the God who has kept his covenantal promises so many times over for his children who cannot match his steadfastness. Daniel is asking God to be God, the very character of God as the covenant keeper while he acknowledges that it isn't because Israel deserves it. From verse 16 onward, we see Daniel's prayer continuing to appeal to God's character and God's reputation. Daniel asked God to end Israel's exile for his own name's sake. The theologian Chris Wright offers this, the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem had an identity and a destiny bound up with the name of Yahweh, the Lord God Israel. So Daniel is calling upon God to defend the honor of his own reputation. Friends, when you see in your Bibles the word Lord, but in all caps, that is in the name Yahweh translated. And here Daniel is using this name of God, Yahweh, over and over and over again. Whereas typically he's using other words as well to describe God or Lord. But here Daniel is poking He is saying, you are Yahweh, the one who revealed himself to you and made covenant with your people. Now, Daniel's prayer is not fueled at all by hatred of his captors. And this is not the first time that we've seen this incredible thing. Daniel is confessing Israel's sin, but not that of his enemies. Do you see this? He is celebrating God's goodness, but he is not celebrating what could be the very impending judgment and destruction of his enemies. That has no place in his prayer. Friends, can we pray this way? How easy is it to lament the sins of our enemies and pray for the protection of our church? Yet Daniel's example challenges us to consider that we might lament the sins of the church and pray for and serve our enemies. Christians must guard against the temptation of schadenfreude. This is a German word that translates the joy of others' harm. You know this feeling. You love to see someone go down, particularly if it's someone that you do not particularly like or appreciate, or perhaps them going down makes you feel like you are raised up. This is schadenfreude. It's enjoying the train wreck that's about to happen and taking a front row seat. Friends, we have that temptation. Is it easier for us to pray for the non-Christian world and harder for us to pray for other Christians that we think are messing it up for the rest of us? Are we willing to grieve the sins that we see in our churches and identify ourselves as part of the problem? I've been on staff at other churches and had the privilege of leading liturgy there. And sometimes that required me to write prayers of confession. And sometimes I would have congregants frustrated that I was inviting them to confess sins that they didn't think they had committed. The particular language of confession they thought didn't apply. And friends, that is not a posture of confessional humility. I wanna ask you to, Consider the image on the front of your liturgies, your bulletins for a moment. This is a story that might be familiar to many of us. This is a painting by James Tussaud of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And this story, which is recounted in the gospel, shows a Pharisee, a religious, zealous legalist, who confesses only the sin he must, and in fact takes greater pains in 
the, the, the chance to celebrate the fact that he is not as sinful as others nearby. The Pharisee is the man in these white robes with his arms up. And then we have the tax collector in yellow who knows he is in desperate need and confesses unreservedly without trying to eke out any sort of defense. And Jesus offers this story to help us understand what our own invitation is to confessional humility. Because friends, this is the safest place to be. The safest place is to be in covenant with God. Whether you think you have kept your promises well, or whether you know, as I do, that I can recount a long list of promises I've broken and the people I've hurt because of it. Our God keeps his promises perfectly because he is a God of covenant. And he also knows that we don't. Folks, do you remember now back to Abram in Genesis? In that ritual, when God's presence passed through those cut animal pieces, do you know what Abram was doing in that moment? He was sleeping. Not due to simple exhaustion or lazy neglect. No, in fact, it was God who put him to sleep. Genesis 15, 12 says a deep sleep fell upon Abram. It was, it was imposed upon him, this sleep. And the word there for sleep in Hebrew, it's the same word to describe the deep sleep that God puts Adam into in order to remove a rib and fashion his counterpart. This sort of sleep that Abram has put upon him highlights a statement that God is making that we human beings are bystanders to the miraculous work of God. We cannot guarantee covenant. Adam does, excuse me, Abram does not pass through those animal pieces. In fact, he is incapacitated in sleep and has no choice but to allow God to carry the weight of this covenant. Friends, we cannot guarantee covenant keeping with God either. We are participants, we are benefactors, but we do not actually keep our covenant obligations. And we certainly can't bear the full weight of consequences when covenant is broken, not without being destroyed. And our loving Father, he knows that. So he passed through these torn animal bodies in order to signal that he would take death on when we broke covenant. And he sent his own son, Jesus, to keep covenant perfectly where we could not. And Jesus formed a new and unbreakable covenant in his own blood. He became like those dead, cut, slain animals in sacrifice to bear the consequences of broken covenant on our behalf. And so as we move toward taking the Eucharist together, friends, this is a covenantal meal. If you are a Christian, remember that as a child of this covenant, you are reenacting this story, the story of the whole of scripture of how God is intending to keep his promises and addressing his own covenant faithfulness again and again and again. When you eat this covenantal meal, it signals the very deliverance Daniel was crying out for. And like he was told by the angel Gabriel that he is greatly loved 
And so God sends this messenger to help him know that God has heard his prayers. When you come to the table, consider what it means for you to take and eat God's promises fulfilled in Christ. Friends, let's pray. Jesus, you are the guarantee of a better covenant, a permanent one that will always be kept according to the steadfast love of the Father and by the power of your spirit. We thank you. Amen.